0: Our reading today is Ephesians chapter 5 verses 15 through 33. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his wife, his father, not his wife <laughs> and mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated.
1: All right. Thanks a lot, Stephanie. Morning Redemption. So, um, you know, Malcolm Gladwell has a a lot of books. I don't know if you have read his books, but he also has a podcast. And um, in season three of his podcast, which just came out recently, there is actually an episode on what we might call Freudian slips and he studies those and so that might be interesting to know what Malcolm has to say about what you just read so <laughs> always ready with a word of encouragement Stephanie That's good. Yeah. So, um, I, I have to deal with something before we get started as, as your pastor I thought about whether or not I should bring this up but I think it's important enough to bring it up something happened in our parking lot last week um, it, uh, uh, three, three years ago I bought a used (coughs) Altima and um, I adorned it immediately with a Chicago Blackhawks license plate frame holder. Uh, And then this summer, um, I I gave that car to Darby and and her husband, Joey, because they moved from Chicago to central Illinois. They're going to graduate school, but they're going to different schools and they're working in different places. They just needed a second car that could be reliable. And uh, I love that Altima, but I got rid of it for that. I have a friend a good friend who actually provides a, a um, personal used car shopper service. You pay a little bit of a premium, but let me tell you something. You don't have to sit with anybody, if you know what I mean. It's worth the premium. Anyway, he found me a 2011 Volvo. It wasn't exactly what I was looking for, but I couldn't pass it up. It was in great shape. And uh, the first thing I did after uh, signing the purchase agreement was I went online and ordered a Chicago Blackhawks license plate frame because J- uh, Darby and Joey wanted the one on the Ultima because they're Blackhawks fans too. Uh, apparently, last, somebody, somebody, uh, last Sunday, somebody um, went out and took that license plate frame off of my uh, Volvo. And that, that wasn't even the worst of it. They replaced it with a Boston Bruins license plate <laughs> frame. And that might not even be the worst of it. I didn't notice it until yesterday morning. So I was a Boston Bruins fan for a whole week and didn't know it. Special place in hell for people like that. I I love Redemption Church. So, as you saw... Stephanie read this morning uh, 15 through 33. We've been talking about how that's an entire unit in many ways. And actually that unit continues on for nine verses into uh, chapter 6. And we've been imploring you, if you've missed any of the weeks or are going to miss any of the weeks, uh, this is a six-week ongoing conversation. We're going to look at 25 through Uh, 31 today talking about the husbands next week we'll look at 32 and 33 the following week um, children and parents the following week um, masters and slaves but we need to explain that terminology the following week but it's all part of this household code that really starts in verse 15 of Ephesians 5 and we've said we do our best to as we work through books make each Sunday, a standalone message. So if you miss something, maybe you didn't uh, miss the continuity of what's happening. These six weeks are very important that you have the continuity. There will be holes if you miss any of these six weeks. So if you've missed any of them, go back and listen to the podcast. It'll be, it'll be very, very helpful. So we're going to talk about husbands today. Let's pray before we get started. Uh, Lord God, we, um, we come with all kinds of questions and suspicions, especially when we approach a text uh, like Ephesians 5, 15 through 6, 9. There's all kinds of things in this passage that that can be troubling and that will have questions about legitimate questions. Uh, But I also pray that we come having submitted ourselves first and foremost to the filling of the Holy Spirit who illuminates scripture for us and, and submitting ourselves to the resurrected Christ so that Uh, Even though it might be uncomfortable at times, we might hear what you have to say to us through your Apostle Paul. And so we ask that uh, we would do that now. Uh, God, uh, I'm the one delivering this message, but please um, move me out of the way so that you might be heard this morning. That's our prayer. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Husband's Day. And I know... um, you know, we live in a world today where, where men are getting it really from both sides. Uh, back in the bookstore days, anybody remember the bookstore days? I okay. used to spend a lot of time in bookstores. I loved being in bookstores. Um, I, I remember th- there would be five racks of books for sale, floor to ceiling, uh, specifically on how women feel and should be treated. And then there'd be a shelf and a half on how men feel and should be treated and and in our culture today when men do try to lead they are accused of being domineering misogynists and they need to stand down by the way the fact that there are so many resources out there about how women feel and should be treated and so little for how uh, men feel and should be treated that's why we often have uh... churches rise up that are for men which in and of itself is not necessarily unhealthy, but can be very unhealthy in its expression and manifestation. But it is a reaction to that reality in our world. And so men are feeling this pressure. On the other side of that, you know, we're, we're, we're accused a lot. But on the other side of that, if we stand down, then we become passive and the world sort of runs over us. And then women begin to complain that we aren't strong and we need to do a better job of leading. So I get it. Many men are really frustrated today. Now, what I just said, I want you to hear, there are two important challenges with what I just said that we need to be willing to embrace and think about. Here's the first one. Some of these accusations against men are absolutely true. Certainly not all, but some. Just because you and I are annoyed by the criticism doesn't mean that some of it isn't true. When I first came to Redemption Church, and, and I met for months with Tyler Johnson, our lead pastor, as, as he vetted me, and I was kind of vetting him, but I knew I wanted to be here. Um, one of the things we talked about, and I'll never forget this, he said, you know, church work is really hard, yes, yes. So there's a lot of other work, and we're going to talk about that in four weeks, three or four weeks, but it's really hard, and, and you get a lot of criticism, a lot of criticism that is unjust. Yes, I agree. Uh, but he said, you know, it's helpful, though, that even when it's unjust and the criticism is delivered in the wrong way, which it often is, um, go ahead and still listen to it. Tom Schrader, one of our founding pastors, says that he, he always read anonymous letters because he he hated the cowardice behind that, but if there was some measure of truth in the letter, he wanted to know it. And Tyler said this. He said, even if you only find 2% of the criticism is true, it might be helpful to consider that 2% and and think about any change or transformation that needs to happen there. I, I thought that was challenging, but right, right. We need to remember that the call of the gospel on all lives is that we do self-examination and not other examination. I know there's times when we have to be discerning about others, but we tend to overextend in that area and and underextend when it comes to our own self-examination. The call of the gospel is to serve others and not to expect or even demand that others serve us. Do we have legitimate reasons why we should be served in the church most certainly but the vast majority of people in church are the ones that should be serving and not the ones looking for service you need to understand your life situation where you are your season of life so that's the first problem just because we're annoyed with the criticism doesn't mean that we shouldn't take it seriously and that some of it isn't true here's the second problem And this is where we need to settle. And and please, look up, this is really important. The vast majority of the criticism does not have as the proposed solution a gospel-centered approach. That's the problem. A lot of it is just criticism with no end game. And that's a problem. A lot of it is punitive, which I understand. (laughs) I get it. The injustices are real. I get it. But the injustices are going to continue, no matter how punitive we are and how much we criticize, if there isn't a transforming agent that starts to change us. And that's what the gospel does. And so if there's no gospel-centered approach and the criticism is just criticism and punitive, ultimately the criticism is useless, and we have to realize that. It's just going to continue. All of this marriage stuff, all of these marriage challenges, it all comes down to one basic question. Do you believe the gospel or not? Again, the problem with so many Christians today is they believe in God, but they don't believe God. So today, once again, rooted in the scripture, we're going to talk about what we're called to do in a gospel-centered marriage. Last week, it was what wives are called in a gospel-centered marriage, and today it's the husbands. And again, I, I say this a lot. If you don't like what God calls you to in any context, and today, if you don't like what God calls you to in marriage, your beef is with him and no one else. As the church... We pledge to help you in any way we can, but we cannot help if you refuse the counsel of God, because ultimately that's where we're going to go. I mean, seriously, what's the point in even meeting if you don't believe in God? I am a pastor. I believe in God, and I believe the gospel, and I believe in Jesus' teachings. So Why would you meet with me if you have no interest in any of that? And I love meeting with people, and I want to meet with people, and I want to help any way I can and so does our staff but if we're starting this is my authoritative text and your authoritative text is you and how you feel do you understand that there's going to be absolutely nothing that we can agree on that should be fairly obvious okay so you look at verse 525 it's an incredible verse it's both simple and imposing husbands love your wives as christ loved the church and the question is how did christ love the church paul tells us at the end of this verse he gave himself up for the church he died for the church he sacrificed everything for the church he did not count his deity as something to be clung to but was willing to do this. She, the church, is prioritized first by Jesus. And that word love, your wives, is really important to understand. There are several different Greek words that you could use, that Paul could have used there. For instance, there's the word eros, which, which is rooted in beauty and sensuality. It's the sexual love. He didn't use that word. And that word for love, is rooted in the worthiness of the other. Several other words, I could go through them all, but every one of those words for love that we can find in ancient Greek writing and in the New Testament are rooted in the worthiness of the other, the one being loved. There's something about the other that is worthy of being loved. None of those loves is what's used here. The word is agape. Agape means selfless, unconditional, compassionate love, and it is rooted not in the worthiness of the one being loved, but in the character of the one doing the loving. It's rooted in the idea that while we were yet sinners, Jesus loved us enough that he died for us. That's what we have to understand. It's rooted in the character of the one doing the loving. Here you go. It's not dependent upon how you feel about her. We need to understand that. But uh, this idea of mutual submission that we've been talking about for several weeks and we'll continue to talk about. Mutual but not same. Nevertheless, mutual submission. um, A lot of the scholars uh, don't want to use the word submit for the husband. They just don't. And they point to verse 25 and say, look, the, ver- the verb submit is not in that verse, okay? Only the wives are to submit, okay? It's kind of interesting. Paul says we need to submit to one another out of what? Reverence for Christ. Uh, everybody submits to one another, but apparently once we go home, the husband doesn't have to submit, Okay? Last week, we talked about how wives need to submit to their husbands. They need to respect and affirm their husbands, even and especially, and here's the key, when they're not respectable and affirmable, that's really the most important time to do it, because anybody can respect someone who's respectable, right? So what are husbands to do? Here's one of those commentators writing about verse 25. Paul does not command the husband to submit to his wife but instead tells the husband that he must give himself up for her. My reaction to that is, oh, I see. So husbands, here's our mantra. I will die before I ever submit to my wife. <laughs> it's just, I don't know, it's just silly. The, 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 the rhetorical semantics that you and I will go through... To keep from doing what God simply calls us to do is mind-boggling. I'm glad I've never done that. (laughs) Right, Jackie? Why are we just so unwilling to let God be God? Why do we want to try so hard to justify ourselves? Why do we spend so much time working the linguistic and verbal Semantics of scripture in order to get it to say what we want it to say or what we not don't want it to say Listen No matter what No matter how we slice and dice this no matter how logical and convincing you and I try to be There will always be wives who do not respect affirm or submit to their husbands And there will always be husbands who do not love their wives the way god calls them to that's just a fact And usually the defense against doing what God calls us to is to try to hide or couch the excuses in semantics. Now again, a reminder from last week. Submission is giving up power and authority. But always, always, always first to Jesus. Because he had all power and authority if he wanted to to keep from going to the cross. That's why it says, out of reverence for Christ. He submitted to something way bigger than you and I will ever be asked to submit to. And he had to give up his power and authority in order to be able to do that. And he willingly did it. So for husbands, we are called to submit our power to be husbands. And for those of you who get squeamish, because I know you're out there, about the word submission, it doesn't matter. You can call it submission, You can call it Rice Krispie Bars for all I care. It doesn't matter. We are called in the gospel to give away power. And the reason is because Jesus gave up his power to go to the cross. It says so. It says so even in Philippians chapter 2. Jesus, though he was God, did not count equality with God something to be clung to, but rather he emptied himself and submitted to death, even death on a cross. Now, I know. I've heard this argument, too. We could legitimately argue that Jesus went to the cross out of his authority and power. That is true. A component of his strength was that he went to the cross. It took great strength to give away that power and authority to go to the cross. Nevertheless, he did something that was not his idea, but he did it because he knew it was the way of love. It's agape love. Isn't it interesting in... The Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, love your enemies, he uses that word agape, agape your enemies. It's almost as if Jesus is admitting, I know there isn't anything worthy of your love in your enemies, but love them anyway. Because that's how I've loved you. While we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. It took great strength, I admit, to give away the power he had to actually say no. Nevertheless, it's submission. It's a Rice Krispie bar. Whatever you want to call it, I don't care. Why is it just so impossible to imagine that God loves us, he really has our best in mind, and we ought to just realize that and, and understand that his love for us is expressed in a way that maybe sometimes we don't get? And once we begin to live our lives according to His will and not ours, the funny thing is, it generally gets better for us. Paul reminds us in this entire section of Scripture, again, that God loved us so much that He sent His Son to die for us out of reverence for Christ. And that changes everything. We live under a brand new paradigm. So those of us who are married or will be married, we claim to love our spouses or our spouse-to-be, Paul says you really ought to act like it. And the picture of Jesus and the church is our example. And Jesus counted what he did for the church a privilege and not a burden. All right, I'll do it, but it's a tremendous burden. Jesus counted this as a privilege. Hebrews 12, verse 2. We fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for it was the joy... Privilege set before him that he endured the cross and scorned its shame. Uh, Jackie and I, when we do have downtime, uh, we tend to plop ourselves on the couch and 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 get out the clicker and try to figure out on Netflix or Amazon what we're going to watch. And we love serial shows, you know, Office, Justified. Um, I love the Coen brothers. Jackie does too. She just doesn't know it totally yet. <laughs> I love the Coen brothers. They are exceptional storytellers. And for whatever reason, almost every story they tell is somehow undergirded by this implicit uh, ethic that is actually correct. Sometimes we just don't see it. And, and so we found the the... The series Fargo. I know they did a movie called Fargo. Again, another one with that very dark, but undergirded with this incredible ethic and great storytelling. But they have a series called Fargo. There's been three. Se- I went to ASU. There's been three seasons. Okay, all right. In Fargo, season two, episode ten. It's set in 1978. So understand the setting. Uh, it's about a guy named Lou Salverson. He's the sheriff somewhere in the Dakotas, okay? There's this scene where he's got this suspect in the back of his car, his police car, a suspect that you have now spent nine episodes getting to know, and this suspect has never in her entire life lived for anybody else. She's only lived for herself, and she's a representation of anybody, male or female, who is like that, and she's in big trouble. She's going to be charged with murder. And the Cohen brothers seem to like to do this. They like to have uh, conversations with law enforcement in the front and the criminal in the back, where the law enforcement officer is going to unpack some great truth for the criminal in the back, which probably, if she had heard this years before, might have been of more help to her. But this is the Cohen brothers at their best. Here's, here's what happened Solverson says. I was there in Vietnam in, at the end, you know, after the war when Saigon fell on the USS Kirk patrolling the coast. And when the country went, it went fast. And we had like only 24 hours to get everyone out. And you know, Everyone, not just Americans, but our allies, the South Vietnamese, all packed onto boats and helicopters. We stood on the deck and waved them in. And one by one, they'd land, unload, and then we'd push the whirlybirds into the sea. The darndest thing. And then this Chinook comes. And those things, you just can't land them on a ship this size. So we waved them off. But the pilot's got his whole family inside, and he's running out of fuel. So it's now or never. So he hovers on the deck. People start jumping, scared or not, onto the ship. There's a baby, literally, a a tiny baby. And the mother just drops him. And one of my boys, like catching a ball, sticks out his hands. So now everybody's out, and I'm thinking, how the heck is this pilot, right? How's he going to get out? But he maneuvers off the port bow. And he hovers there for the longest time doing, you know, what we learned later, uh, was taking off his flight suit. And somehow he rolls the bird on its side, and just before it hits the water, he jumps. There's 6,000 pounds of angry helicopter parts flying all around him, and somehow he makes it. How do you do that? And the suspect asks a question. So what are you saying? Salverson answers, well... He said he was going to protect his family no matter what. And I acted like I didn't understand, but I do understand. I do. It's the rock we all push. Men, if you're a man, it's the rock you push. We call it our burden, but it's really our privilege. It's really our privilege. Love your wife as Christ loved the church because it's our privilege. Because Jesus counted it a privilege to do it for us. Craig Keener writes this on verse 25. Traditional first century household codes instructed male heads of the household how to rule. Paul instructs husbands instead how to love. The scholar S.M. Baugh has this to say about verse 25. The husband is bound by love to aspire to provide his wife with a marriage that is richly fulfilling and rooted in the joyful service of the Lord. Remember, there are no loopholes here. Uh, Let me ask this question, and it's not a trick question. Is the church always lovable? Thank you for that response, because that's the correct response. (laughs) (laughs) Yet Christ loves his bride unconditionally. In all of the nonsense that we get ourselves involved in. I know your wife is not always lovable. And you engage, guys. Yeah, she's not always going to be lovable. Love her anyway. While you and I were sinners, Christ died for us. It does not say, while we were perfectly adorable, Christ decided we were good enough to die for. It's not what it says. Again, I said this last week. This is not, I want to make sure I get my deal, but I need to make sure I'm doing my deal. And here's the odd thing about this that I've found in nearly 31 years of marriage now. When Jackie shows me respect even when I don't deserve it, it makes me want to be more respectful. It just does. Way more than if she yelled at me or embarrassed me, showed contempt for me. And Jackie has literally told me on occasion, I know I was not all that lovable that time, but you loved me anyway, it makes me want to be more lovable. That's a, just a tiny taste of how powerful the gospel of Jesus Christ is. A tiny taste. Listen, I know, again, we're living in this, we have this Me Too movement going on. And, and totally understand it. You know, the world is seeking for ways to fix things. So Me Too is another way to try to fix things. And I get it. I get it. The challenge with Me Too, of course, is it doesn't have a solution. It just doesn't. It doesn't. At least it doesn't have one with any power. And, of course, it's been hijacked by many of the wrong people and used for all the wrong purposes as well, so that creates a problem as well. Okay? I would like to suggest that, that what we need instead of a YouTube movement is a gospel movement. Men who know Jesus need to get serious about their faith. And more men need to know Jesus. Now, I am please. I am not in any way discounting uh, the mistreatment of women in the past. Like I said, I get it. I understand. Me too makes total sense to me. And as a pastor, I the, the stories I hear, the histories I'm told about, they break my heart. And women have every right to be angry. Occasionally, somebody will say, oh, you're a pastor. Oh, yeah, okay. Well, someday you'll know what it's like to live in, you know, like the real world. Hey, just walk around with me for two weeks, 24 hours a day. You'll see more real world in my job than you might in a year. I get it. I totally get it. But me too is never going to ultimately solve or fix this. Only Jesus can. That's it. That's what we that's our hope. That's what we have to cling to. And and guys, I want you to hear me. This is not about shame. I'm right there with you. I'm not interested. Shame does us you can't shame people into better behavior. We we all know that. Okay? And all of us, men and women, have done shameful things. Can I get an amen? Liars. (laughs) It's not about shame. It's about coming to Jesus, embracing him, learning from him, and taking him seriously. Because Jesus endured the ultimate shame. Nobody went through something as shameful as Jesus did. Perfectly innocent, went to the cross, and that whole process of being crucified is filled with purposeful shame and humility, and he bore that on our behalf. And verses 15 through 33 that Stephanie read this morning are a picture of Christ and the church as a marriage. Sam Albury writes this. If you want to understand how committed Jesus is to the church, here's your answer. He doesn't just create the church and let it be. He marries it. Church is not his hobby. Church is his marriage. Church is his life. Church is his body. Church is his being. And then by the power and filling and wisdom of the Holy Spirit... Paul writes that our marriages are to be a picture to each other and to the world of the love, sacrifice, commitment, and joy of Jesus and the church married. And that's primarily the responsibility of the men. Is the church perfect? No. Jesus loves it anyway. Does the church... Deserve to be made righteous by the sacrifice of Jesus. No, we do not deserve it, but Jesus does it anyway. Is your spouse perfect? Of course not. Does your wife deserve someone as wonderful as you? Well, that conversation could go another way really quickly. You see, one of the problems with a culture that tells us that we're just so wonderful and we're good, there's only a few evil people out there, And that we deserve all good things is we start to believe it. And then we begin to take everyone else and everything else for granted. granted. We become ungrateful no matter how much we have. And tragically, we believe that everyone else must adapt to and serve us and to bless us. Did Jesus really die for us so that we could become the Lord of others? Is that how it works? Jesus blesses us, shows us how blessed we are, and empowers us by the gospel to live as a blessing to others. That's verse 25. <laughs> Look at 26 through 31 now. This is important to understand this transition that happens. Starting in 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Here you go. There's a transition in the text, and we need to understand this. Paul switches deftly to describing Christ in the church is how our marriages are supposed to look. That he, Jesus, might sanctify her, the church, having cleansed her, the church, by the washing of water with the word. I've had husbands ask me before, how am I supposed to sanctify my wife? Well, actually, marriage is the most sanctifying thing we'll all ever go through, amen. But it is Jesus' job to sanctify your wife. This is about Jesus in the church. So that he, Jesus, might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she, the church, might be holy and without blemish. Then he transitions again in verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh. But nourishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. If you know genesis chapter 2 and if you know matthew chapter 19 and if you know the whole tenor of the new testament about the two fleshes becoming one that that's the picture of the gospel that's the picture of everything you understand what paul is saying right here when you love your wife you are loving your own flesh because you've left your parents you've been united with your wife and you have become one flesh with her We'll look at those verses in a second. But Paul, even in verse 31, quotes Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. in case you were wondering if I was making that up out of whole cloth, he quotes Genesis chapter 2: 24. He writes, "Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh." And then he says in verse 32. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. There you go. Our marriages, important as they are, should be a picture of Christ in the church to the rest of the world. This is a high calling. I get it. I just wanted to be happy, so I married her. It's a much higher calling than that. It's a much, much higher calling than that. Um. Let me take it. You, you don't have to go there. It'll be up on the screen. After God has created everything, including the woman, here's how he ends chapter 2 of Genesis before the shenanigans of chapter 3. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That verse 24 was revolutionary. No ancient Law code or writing ever, ever talked about a man leaving his own family, taking just one wife, and they go off and start something new. It was always the man would go out from his family, find a wife, bring her back, and she had to subsume into that new family. No man ever had to do that in any other ancient culture. This was revolutionary. And then, also revolutionary, God says that we are to be one woman, men. This, this whole thing, you've, heard, you've read all these psychologists now saying it's not healthy for men to confine themselves to only one woman. We all need to have open marriages. You've, you've read this, I'm sure, because I'm reading it all. Maybe I'm just on the wrong websites. At any rate, <laughs> this, is what, this is what the world is selling us, okay? God says you're to be a one woman man. Well, they didn't do that in the rest of the Old Testament. They were, no, I know. They were defying God at that time. But that was revolutionary too. They would join together as one flesh and they would go off and start their whole new thing. That's what this marriage is supposed to look like. It's a picture of God and his people. It's a picture of Christ and his church. The two become one flesh. And the intimacy that results from that is power. It's perfect in verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. That was uh, nudity, not just physically, but even on a deeper level, emotionally and spiritually. And and, and in the gospel, in a gospel-centered marriage, we get a taste of that. We get a taste of of, of that, which has been planted in our hearts, and we know it's there. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, God has put eternity into our hearts, and that's part of it. We know there's an intimacy and a trust there that we should be able to have and we just can't get it the gospel starts to lead us back toward that that's how we should look at our marriages and guys you need to lead in this so consider jesus is our groom we are the bride how much time did jesus spend with his bride just talking being available and getting to know his bride he spent a lot one of the tragedies of the world we live in is the busyness and and, and we think that that's the best thing for us, but we really need to do a better job of carving out time for what's really important. I'm, I want to end with this illustration, and it's really good, I think, and really important. There's a guy named Andy Stanley. Many of you are familiar with him and, and listen to him. Um, he's Charles Stanley's son. He has a church in, a big church in Atlanta. He's written lots of books, wonderful communicator. Um, he wrote a book about this sermon series he did once that literally we call Choosing to Cheat. Choosing to Cheat. And, and here's the premise of the book, and he's right. You, you and I, we're busy, right? We're very busy. And, and literally, when you think about all the things going on in our lives, all the things going on in our lives, we have 168 hours every week that we can fit all of that into. And and time is the only resource that we have that there isn't more available of and is not renewable. So how you spend that time is probably way more important than how you spend anything else, how you invest, how you choose to use that time. Okay, 168 hours. The problem is, is that you and I easily have stuff to do that would take 250 hours every week, right? That's the problem. We don't have enough time for this. We don't have enough time for that. So he says correctly I believe that we're going to start to cheat something in our life. And if we're not purposeful about it, if we're not thinking about it, if we don't understand this dynamic in our life, you and I will always default to cheating the wrong things during the wrong seasons of our life. We just will if we don't think about this. This is so important. So he lists, and, and I, I don't have the categories probably exactly perfect, but he lists out the categories of our life that we need to be spending time in. And it's, and it's overwhelming when you think about only 168 hours in the week. But there's God in our relationship with Jesus, church, all that. There's work. There's sleep. There's our family and marriage. There's rest and recreation. There's health and exercise. There's friends and community. And then there's education, whether it's continuing education or you're in school. Seven or eight of these categories. I mean, it's imposing, right? You're going to have to make some choices. Our oldest daughter is in PA school right now. She had to make some choices. She, she can no longer um, watch three different shows on Netflix and play volleyball four nights a week. She, she had to make some choices. And if you don't purposefully choose, you will cheat the wrong things in each season of your life. Fifteen years ago, when I first started to understand this idea of choosing to cheat, I know it's interesting vernacular in the context of what we're talking about today, husbands, right? Okay, But this is a good kind of cheating. Fifteen years ago, I made the decision during that particular season of my life that, uh, that I was going to cheat primarily sleep, because I could at that time in my life. I was younger. I also cheated my job a little bit because I had two young kids at home and a wife who needed help and they were involved in all kinds of activities and I don't want to be that dad who couldn't make their activities. And so I only worked seven nights a month during that, during that season of my life. Now I don't have to. I get a little bit more sleep now and I work 15 to 20 nights a month on church stuff, because I can. Jackie and I, our kids are out of the house. One's living in Texas. The other one with her husband's living in Illinois. They're not here, so we have that burden removed. We think about them every day, but we have that burden removed. We have other times that Jackie and I can carve out for each other. Choosing to cheat and understanding the season of life that you're in. But what needs to be always consistent for us is God, our wives, and our family. That's the consistent thing. We need to make sure that those things are not being cheated because Jesus never cheated us. Out of reverence for Christ, that's the key to this whole six weeks. It's the key to everything really out of reverence for Christ. Let's pray together. Lord God, again, we, think, we thank you for being willing to confront us in our areas of greatest um, uh, weakness and foolhardiness. God, we pray that we would take your words to heart, that we would, we would celebrate joyfully that we know your Son And that we understand everything that he did for us and what he gave up for us. And that that would uh, serve to empower us. That we would call on the Holy Spirit to fill us every day, every hour. And that we would live in submission to you and your wisdom and your will. God, help us to do that. We need your strength to be able to do that. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.